This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Lim, Associate Professor of the History of Christianity and Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University and Divinity School. He's a graduate of Yale and Cambridge Universities and a historian of early modern and early Enlightenment England, looking particularly at the religious and intellectual changes connected with the English Reformation. He's the author of three books, most recently, Mystery Unveiled, The Crisis of the Trinity in Early Modern England. That's coming out from Oxford University Press in 2012. He's also the editor of The Cambridge Companion to Puritanism and a volume on Richard Baxter's Doctrine of the Church. We'll be talking about these topics and more today on Office Hours. Hi, Paul, and welcome to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Well, we are very excited to have you on campus. It was great to have you in chapel talking with the students about Calvin and his doctrine of man and related topics. So it was exciting and encouraging for them. I know they were looking forward to to hearing from you. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some areas in which you have done research and writing. Let's think and talk about the English Reformation. Or maybe we should say reformations. Mm -hmm. Sure. It sometimes seems to me that the English Reformation is, in its own way, more complicated than the Mm -hmm. various European Reformations. Why was it? If it was complicated, Mm. why was it so? One of the things that we often forget is how Erastian this whole enterprise was. Erastian meaning that it is the magistrate, or in this case, Henry VIII, kind of in a very kind of top-down fashion, saying that we're going to do this, and not only are we going to do this, but I am going to be the supreme head of the church. So in his effort to eradicate the presence of popery or papacy and both, and any kind of vestigial elements of Catholicism, he did away with a lot of that. But then there was a lot of kind of residual elements of Catholic piety and popular religion. But at least in terms of official policy, he does away with the pope and Catholicism as the reigning kind of a religion of the realm. Right, So that's what I mean by Erastianism. And therefore, what is more complicated is from the period of Henry to his daughter, Elizabeth, you see in, in between the two, Edward and Mary, it becomes a very, very complex and complicated affair in terms of the sort of wax and wane of ping pong. Ping pong, exactly. Ecclesiastical ping pong match. You know, whatever is the desire and the delight of the sovereign will be the religion of the realm. So it is the sort of anticipating of that 1648 kind of, you know, a treaty at Westphalia. You know, whatever is the religion of the ruler will be the religion of the realm. I mean, you see that already very much in play in England. And I think as you said, it is therefore a little bit more complicated in that it depended a lot on two things. It depended a lot on the the wishes and the whim of the sovereign, but also those were kind of the ecclesiastical architects, the Archbishop of Canterbury and York, but also a lot of the rank-and-file clergy were not always kind of marching according to the drumbeat of the sovereign, right? So then there arose this kind of ferment of dissent. And the trajectory of dissent, whether in a popular way or Puritanism or in a political kind of machination, All of these things added to make the sort of English reformations a lot more interesting to read about and certainly to research. And it didn't just become Protestant and then sort of stay that way. And it becomes vaguely Protestant in some respects. Mm -hmm. But as you say, Mm -hmm. lots of vestiges of Roman piety and Henry replaces the papacy. Then you get 
Cranmer. Sure. And you begin, in some respects, to head towards Reformation. Right. But then you get Mary and a sharp reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, you get before that Edward, yes. and you begin moving in a more Reformed sure. direction. And then sure. Mary and a sharp sure. Reaction to that back towards Rome, right. sort of almost hyper sure. Romanism, and then you get a settlement mm-hmm. of sorts under Elizabeth. Right, right, right. If you're an English Christian <laughs> in a period of 30 years, mm-hmm. you have multiple religious, ecclesiastical identities imposed on you. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that would be a very fascinating study. I don't know if uh, contemporary kind of historiography that has kind of chronicled the religious life of someone who is sur- rather as a someone in the sort of as a minister of state or someone who is just average lay person in terms of the sort of religious kind of topography, how that person metamorphosed throughout one's career and life, you know, because I think you're right. The 30 year period is, is a really remarkable kind of ebb and flow of various types of religiosity that shaped uh, not only the nation's destiny, but also the, the, the average person sitting in the pews and how they thought of God. I mean, for example, as you know this so very well, you know, when Luther calls Pope Antichrist, all of a sudden you have this kind of parallel universe where the Pope is no longer the supreme kind of vicar of Christ here on earth, but someone who is Antichrist. I mean, this is absolute anathema as far as some Christians are concerned. Now, that was becoming not only okay, but Luther was still around. You would have thought that he would be anathematized and he'd be struck down by God, you know. And he isn't. One of the great mysteries of the Reformation is that Luther survived. Right, right. If you think about the power, at least ostensibly, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the papacy and various civil entities that supported Roman theology, piety, and practice, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the fact that in the past, other quote-unquote heretics Mm -hmm. had been dispatched. Right, right. And here's this corpulent Augustinian friar... who stands up to the papacy, gets away with it, Mm -hmm. in fact, even thinks that he's going to die, doesn't die. Right, right, right. Thinks he's being kidnapped in order to be assassinated and is being kidnapped in order to be protected. Right. I mean, looking back, you know, we say, well, of course it went that way, but existentially in the middle of it. Right, right. You wouldn't necessarily see the outcome in that way at all. And it must have seemed all very uncertain. Right. And there's a sense of kind of emerging German nationalism that had a vested interest to protect Luther from this Italian kind of papacy. So I think there are multiple factors providentially orchestrated, of course, but, you know, just kind of in terms of looking at things from the quotidian kind of standpoint, I mean, there are a lot of factors that were there that made it more likely, although Luther may not have felt Mm -hmm. that way every day. You know, but it's it's pretty clear that there was that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Back to England, I think that's what made the English Reformation, both in its Erastian orientation, but also the sort of a theological, not only was it Erastian, but it was, as we well know, was a halfway house between mm-hmm. Rome and Geneva. You managed to infuriate both parties. <laughs> you satisfied none. Well, that's right. By the 40s and 50s, you've yes. got a developing proto-Puritan yes. party that sure. wants to see the kinds of developments that are happening in Geneva and Zurich and elsewhere. They want to see that in England. And then you have people saying, well, no, we want to go back to the pre-Henrikian order. Sure. Yeah, so you have intense dissatisfaction sure. That's right. on all parts. So the English Reformation is delayed, really. Mm. Delayed, it advances, and then is severely retarded under Mary. You know, Elizabeth shuts down preaching mm-hmm. for a few years. Mm. You have a sort of unhappy settlement, or a settlement that doesn't make very many people mm. happy, and that lasts for a very long time. Right. Right. Leading to unresolved tensions coming into the 17th century that don't really get addressed. Right, right. Until 
the Westminster Assembly right. in the 1640s. And by that time, you've got an all-out civil war. Yes. And also the sort of the resurgence or the recalcitrance of these kind of second-generation Laudianism, or those who are much more, shall we say, in contemporary parlance, Anglo-Catholics. So you got both these parties who are trying to enact or effect the sort of Second Reformation, right? I mean, it's pretty clear when you read some of the hardline mm-hmm. Laudians. By Laudian, L-A-U-D-I-A-N, I mean the followers of William Laud, who was executed for being what he was, the sort of a, a henchman under Charles I, who himself was executed. So both the archbishop and the monarch are beheaded, and this is or, or executed, and this is actually uh, just really the world turning upside down. So in the midst of the religious and political turmoil and pandemonium that broke out in the 1640s, there is the Westminster Assembly, but also now the Church of England is now basically at abeyance. And during this period, both the hardline Anglicans are thinking of ways to come back with a vengeance, which they do in the 1660s. But the Westminster Assembly and a lot of the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, there is this kind of genuine discord in Zion, right? I mean, they thought like we are there now, but then they disagree rather intensely, intensely, fiercely over ecclesiology. But they're, they're kind of frontal assault on to this kind of dismantle what they always perceive to be popery and to really achieve this England Second Reformation. So I think recent scholarship tells us that there is this two very different visions and versions of the church, the apostolicity and how that was to be interpreted, whether it was going to include and incorporate the episcopus or just the bishop and archbishop. What was their role and what about the Presbyterians? And so I think that's a very, very in- interesting period where the longer, the, the long duration of the Reformation, it seems to me, reaches all the way to the 1660 in the way that when you look at the continental story, it's pretty much with 1648 and the third, the ending of the Thirty Years' War, you have a sort of a, some kind of detente that is achieved. And I think England is, goes on a little bit longer. Not that it is better, probably isn't better, because they're trying to kind of really carve out their own ecclesial and national identity. And to what extent the sort of Erastian experiment will continue. So... I think that's enough said about my own kind of... <laughs> <laughs> but it's important for Americans sure. to have some grasp of the English Reformation because it's out, oh, out of that setting. And then you have to think about Scotland and yes. Ireland and Wales and so forth. Yes. It's out of that setting that much of our own history oh, yes. has to be, or against that sure. background, that yes. much of our history has to be right. I- interpreted. Absolutely, yes. One of the adjectives or nouns that you used is Puritan. Yes. This is a word that gets used a lot, mm, mm. and it gets tossed around sure. as if everyone knows what we mean by it, and yes. we all agree on what it means, mm-hmm. and we use it as if we can apply that adjective to describe a great variety of figures over a long period of time. Mm, mm. What are some of the problems in using the adjective Puritan to describe such a large number of people, a diverse group of people over such a long period of time? Right. Well, I think uh, you should ask my uh, new graduate student, Drew Martin, because he's uh, or uh, uh, Jonathan Warren, I should say. Uh, both are great students. Jonathan Warren is working on the sort of redefinition of the term Puritan in the 1670s, but that's just to broadcast my own graduate student. But Puritanism was a term of abuse from the outset. It's not just... Although sometimes embraced by those who were kind of, you know, having these epithets hurled at their direction, both figurative and literally and in some other And it's still a cases. term of abuse. It is, yes. In popular yes. culture. Right, right. Don't be so puritanical. Which is so right? interesting. I mean, and this is kind of a somewhat fresh in my own kind of life memory in that, as uh, some of the listeners may know, 
I was born in Korea, but grew up in Philadelphia. But I was 15 when I crossed the Pacific. So they kind of embraced English as my second language. So when I heard the word Puritan, the first time I heard it was someone saying, don't be so puritanical. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so it, was, it was used pejoratively. Oh, very pejoratively in the 20th century. And it certainly was in the 16th century. It is that. So I think to, to properly understand Puritanism, as is the case with a lot of these movements, if you just understand Puritan, then you, we get to understand only one half of that uneasy relationship, as Patrick Collinson calls. We need to understand the sort of anti-Puritan bias and what were they like? Why were they so get that set against this thing? You know, as an interesting aside, next week there's going to be alliance called the Lord's Day Alliance. They're doing this annual conference in Nashville at the uh, First Amendment Center. I'm giving a talk on um, Book of Sports that James I and Charles I issued, which allowed games and sports to be played including bowling, tennis, and soccer, football, or soccer as we call it here in the States, to be played. and so it, it, On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, right? So it's really an interesting thing because the reason why it behooves us to know something more about the sort of history of Christianity in England is because it casts a larger, a longer shadow than we often kind of recognize in the sort of American psyche and the cultural history. And there is a very fascinating piece done by I think maybe Charles Krauthammer, several years ago, almost over 10 years ago in Time magazine, or it could have been uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, two very kind of different figures, politically speaking. But they were actually, one of them was, and maybe some of the listeners can help me, but they were actually, one of them wrote about why we need to have Sunday or reviving this whole blue law tradition, mm. right? Meaning that Sunday stores shall be closed because we no longer have any notion of weekends or how this kind of, you know, recreation helps us to create better. So the listener may not remember that prior to the 1970s, yes. there were sets of laws yes. in cities all over North America, yes. which came to be known as blue laws because... Yes. Maybe they were written in blue pencil or something. <laughs> right. uh, there are different theories about yes. that. Yes. In the 70s, as part of the social revolution coming out of the, the 60s, mm. with the advent of you know relatively easy abortion and then divorce, the blue laws came to be seen as antiquated mm. uh, restrictions on personal liberty, and they were struck down all over the country so mm. that in my childhood, stores and shops and things were all largely closed right. on Sunday. Right. But through the 80s and 90s, they came to be open. And so Sunday is the first or second most profitable day now in North America right. for commerce. Sure, There are some people proposing to bring back yes. for the broader social good, the Sunday laws or right. the, the blue laws. And it's not coming from hard core right wing. No, I don't think ne so. Neo-Puritans. No. It's coming from people <laughs> right. who, who wouldn't identify themselves that way at all. Right, right. So the sort of Puritan legacy, these Puritans, not all Puritans are Sabbatarians, by the way, you know, but the, the legacy of the conflict or anvil upon which they're kind of, you know, the struggle between the book of sports over against the Puritan opposition to it certainly has a kind of a long kind of shelf life, as we've just talked about, the American application of that in the Blue Laws. So I think, you know, the term Puritan has often been used to describe those who were, as uh, that famous journalist of the last century, H.L. Mencken said, Puritan is someone who is afraid that someone somewhere is having fun. <laughs> right. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, 
wscal.edu. 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. We use the word Puritan to describe such a diverse group of people. Right, right. That personally, I, and I've said to students and in some academic context, maybe we should just talk about English or British Reformed theology hmm. rather than using the adjective Puritan simply right, because right. it seems more helpful to talk about particulars. You, right. You have a congregationalist like Owen and mm-hmm. you have some of the... Presbyterians at right. the assembly, you had right. Anglicans at the assembly, uh-huh. and so forth. Better to talk about particulars rather than use a universal descriptor mm-hmm. that, for example, puts Baxter and mm-hmm. Owen mm-hmm. in the same box. Right, right, right. Sure, sure. And if anyone's read Baxter, for mm-hmm. example, particularly on soteriology. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And Owen yes. on the doctrine of salvation. Yeah, yeah. You see that they don't live together very comfortably in no, that same they don't. box. No, no. And I think both kind of resented the fact that they're often put in the same box. It's like the term evangelical today. Right, right, Who's right. an evangelical? Right. If you ask Daryl Hart, he might tell you uh, anyone who identifies with Billy Graham. Right, 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 right. But that leaves a lot of things up in the air, right? Because a lot of younger evangelicals in, bracket, in, in yeah. inverted commas may not even heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Then what do you do with them? Because you don't have a common doctrine of Scripture, God, salvation, church, Christ— last things, right. and certainly not practice. Right. So if you don't have any commonalities, mm. what's an evangelical? Right. And so you have the same problem in the 16th and 17th century, it seems to me. Right, right, right. So as uh, Patrick Collinson calls this uh, Puritans as the hotter sort of Protestant. Yeah. So hotter in terms of sermon gadding. So they would frequent different sermons, mm-hmm. not only their own parish church, but in other villages if possible. They had these kind of prophesyings, which was kind of a, a gathering of popular preaching. A preaching uh, conference, really. Yeah, That's yeah, what we really, would, yeah, sure. When we hold our conferences, yes. you know, in the fall. Exactly. When, it's very much a prophesying, on right? the model yeah. of the old Puritan sure. conferences. Sure. Right. So it wasn't that they were getting up and getting, you know, sort of neo-Pentecostal messages from the Lord. Right, right. No, 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 no. Right. They were expositing scripture sure. or giving sure. a talk or something. And these combination lectures, which often had lunch mm-hmm. involved. And so... Um, very much like our conferences. Very much like your conferences. So that's right. That's right. So that's exactly how they were. This is who we are. And we take our religion seriously. And so whether they were conformists or non-conformists is, is a very interesting question, too, because there are certain conforming mm-hmm. Puritans, such as Richard Sibbs. And so, and so ang- members of the Anglican Church sure. who lived more or less happily within the established that's right, that's order. Right. Yes. So that's what you mean by conforming. That's right. And that's then right. you Thank have you. non-conforming, right. meaning Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and others who dissented from right. Right. the established order. Yes. And yet at the same time, they did have certain things in common. Right. You think of Perkins, yes. who's a conforming Anglican, yep. although not all, maybe always happily so. Right. And then Ames, sure. very much his student, uh, yes. dissenting, right. non-conforming. And, That's right. But they do share a lot together theologically and right. maybe particularly relative to piety and holiness. Sure, sure. So. While on the one hand, part of me wants to sort of deconstruct Puritanism and say, well, there's too many Mm -hmm. differences for us to use it. On the other hand, you can kind of almost feel a a sort of commonality relative to piety and godliness. Mm -hmm. And maybe here then we could bring Baxter in and say, okay, on that level, there is some commonality, even if theologically there are other Right. So it's still kind of a mess, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it is. And I think this, this graduate student of mine is working on this kind of connecting the dot between Puritanism and evangelicalism. Oh, interesting. Because uh, W.R. Ward, mm-hmm. in his kind of counter thesis on uh, David Bebbington, he wants to 
pushed the sort of chronology of the birth of evangelicalism much earlier to the 1670s. Then the sort of not amorphous, but the sort of the the lexical kind of fuzziness of the term Puritanism and Anglo, I mean evangelicalism, uh, can be seen as being born out of the sort of a political and religious turmoil of the restoration of episcopacy and monarchy in 1660, and the situation that a lot of these otherwise would be conforming Puritans found themselves. That is to be given an ultimatum: you conform, or I'll show you the door. And so, or worse, or, or worse. Yes, yes. And so, cannot come to you know five miles within the five mile radius of their old parish, for example. And so, five mile act and other somewhat seemingly, although not exactly draconian measures that were enacted as the so-called Clarendon Code. But I think it it really is a very interesting kind of a birth. And and a lot of these Puritans were having to rethink of their own identity, especially over against uh, the established church. It was often kind of portrayed by the resurgent Restoration Anglicans that if you're not a conforming Church of England person, then you're subversive, you're politically seditious. So a lot of these political identities and religious identities become kind of connected together. As we talk, mm-hmm. you have a volume coming out. And as the listener is hearing this, mm-hmm. the volume may be out. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we'll have to account yeah, for yeah. the chronological sure, weirdness. Sure, sure. On the doctrine of the Trinity yep. in early modern England. Yes. Now, the listener may take it that, well, all Christians believe the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian, mm-hmm. and the definition of Chalcedon mm-hmm. were Trinitarians. Mm-hmm. The listener might not be aware that there were periods in the 16th and 17th centuries and thereafter where Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant Christians faced serious challenges to their Trinitarian theology mm-hmm. and confession. Talk about that a little bit. So it's a book entitled The Mystery Unveiled, uh, The Crisis of the Trinity in Early Modern England. It's part of the Oxford Studies in Historical Theology to be published by May or June, knock on wood, this year. It's, uh, it's in production right now. The basic thesis of this uh, book is that one of the key debates in post-Reformation England was about the Trinity, because the rise of Socinianism, or rise of kind of uh, Gnesio rationalism on the continent. What is Socinianism? Socinianism means um, so followers of Socinus uh, who were kind of uh, biblicists in that they saw that when we talk about one person and another person and yet another person, we're talking about three separate spheres of consciousness, three people that cannot numerically constitute one God. So the person of the Father, person of the Son, person of the Holy Spirit, if we flatten the contours of our semantic use of the word person, because prior to that, there was a a recognition that the playing field or there was a planar distinction between our God talk and Mm -hmm. when we use the word person with respect to God and when we use the same word person with respect to human beings, there was a robust understanding and tacit acknowledgement that that is two different kind of planes of discourse. Uh, that disappears, I think, with Socinus and his followers and the way that that movement gets translated in England, both figuratively and literally, is with this Unitarian, quote-unquote, father named John Biddle, mm-hmm. uh, who became a really, really the sore kind of issue for the Westminster Assembly. And Paul 
Best, B-E-S-T, was another guy who provided some not inconsiderable angst for, especially the Westminster Assembly, really kind of debated as to whether they should execute him or not, because if the denial of the Trinity was capital offense, what do we do with these people? And there was a whole host of debates as to whether they should, the liberty of conscience, as you remember, was sort of the Puritan mantra. And now Puritans have power or are about to have power. And there are these kind of anti-Trinitarian Puritans who actually were biblicists. They were saying, we're just reading the Bible literally, and our little reading of the Bible inevitably leads us to an anti-Trinitarian conclusion. What some of the anti-Trinitarians were doing was taking the very shibboleth of the Puritans and almost turning it against it, yeah, them. Turning it on his head. And so that became a huge problem. And of course, you have a counter-reformation, yes. Roman critics yes. of Protestantism saying, yes. see, we told you all along. That's it. That's it. You people have opened Pandora's box sure. and sure. you've let out a thousand heretical sure. movements. That's right. That's and right. so both in the 16th and 17th centuries, the That's Protestants right. felt tremendous pressure to say, well, no, we're Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. We won't tolerate these anti-Christian heretics right, right. any more than you would have. That's right. Hence... Servetus escaped yes. a Roman town yes. and certain death yes. only to go to Geneva, a right. Protestant town, sure. and, to, get, and, yeah. get, and to meet right. his end. And there were anti-Trinitarians put to death in Heidelberg yes. in the 70s. Oh, yes. So this had been going on for a long time. And then coming into the 17th century, then in England, people are facing some of the same crises brought on by uh, Socinianism. Right. As you've mentioned, this really became a triangulating affair, right? So in my book, I talk about this very interesting kind of dilemma, the horno dilemma that many Protestant Trinitarians found themselves in. Because the Catholics would say the three T's, tradition, transubstantiation, and Trinity, all true. Mm -hmm. What? Well, the anti-Trinitarians would say tradition, Trinity, transubstantiation, all false. false. What these pro-Trinitarian Protestants found themselves in was there are Uh, certainly against transubstantiation. They are certainly for the Trinity. And with regard to tradition, they were... uh, They want to affirm it, but they want to reorder it. That's right. That's right. And there's an affirmation of certain kind of form of tradition that was kind of handed down, but not in the tradition with a capital T. So there is a kind of a... Scripture works in the Roman scheme, to put it boldly. Scripture works for the tradition. Yes. And in the Protestant scheme... Tradition works for scripture. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So in the book, I really kind of talk about how this became both a theologically kind of, you know, explosive issue, but also in terms of the the exchange of polemic, the Protestant Trinitarians had a real, real rough go at it. At one level, it was much easier to affirm or deny all three because they were getting it from both sides. Catholics were saying, look, go back to the mother church, come back, because if you don't, if you don't affirm all three, then you are going to end up inevitably as you you will slide down the the slippery slope. Socinian. And the Socinians would say, look, what are you doing? You affirm the Trinity, then you're going to become like the Catholics. Exactly. So it really kind of became a huge kind of a, a crisis of conscience for a lot of these Trinitarian Protestants to really think about, is this true? How biblical is it? And then the other thing that I wrote about a good deal in my in, in, in this book was uh, reception of church fathers in the sort of post-Reformation England, because that's one of the issues that, interestingly enough, a lot of the anti-Trinitarians were reading and arguing that Anti, A-N-T-E, before Nicaea, anti-Nicenes or anti-Nicenes, arguing that before the codification of the doctrine of the Trinity at 325 in Nicaea, the church knew nothing of the Trinity, which is, I think, became a very, very hotly contested point because the pro-Trinitarians would argue, no, 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 the Trinity was something already embedded in with the advent of Jesus and the proclamation of the early church. They were aware of, so as Larry Hurtado would argue, there's a kind of binitarian shape in the early church's liturgy. I mean, they were kind of arguing something of that sort. 
as early as kind of a, a late 16th and early, uh, mid 17th century. And so the anti-Trinitarians were arguing that before Nicaea, they all they would be aghast to see the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the closer you are to the early church, or their, the whole idea, as we know, is primitivism, trying to emulate and kind of enflesh the early church, the closer you are to the early church chronologically and liturgically, then the better off you are. You're listening to, You're listening Office, to Hours. Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And we're having exactly, as we come to a close here, we're having exactly those arguments today right, in right. contemporary evangelicalism, sure, sure. which gets to the last thing that I want to touch on. Mm. You have a strong concern academic and personal about the state of global evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. So how is your research Mm -hmm. into early modern English Mm -hmm. theology, piety, and practice, Puritanism, and Mm -hmm. possibly evangelicalism, how is that illuminating your consideration of contemporary evangelicalism? Right. Initially, it didn't kind of occur to me until recently, actually, this graduate student, my Jonathan Warren, kind of alluding me to this and saying, well, you should really think about this a little bit more. So I thought I was kind of operating under this kind of assumption that I am a historian trained in early modern and moving into early Enlightenment England, and I'm doing this global kind of, you know, Christianity, global evangelicalism, almost as a separate kind of thing, you know, apples and oranges, shall we say. But then this student said, no, no, actually, they're a lot more connected than you think they are. And then I was like, hang on, you know, this is actually true. <laughs> you know, because a lot of those students, right, they, yeah. right, those students sometimes are right. And they can really teach us some really helpful things. Look, I mean, you got you got people like uh, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, whose understanding of Puritanism, you know, was very somewhat elastic. And the whole tradition of, you know, let's say the Banner of Truth Trust, whose uh, republication of these Puritan classics in a way kind of brought, a, brought about a, a genuine renaissance of the Puritan literature for a contemporary church, certain segment of contemporary evidence. Evangelicalism. Some segment that may not like the term evangelicalism as a sort of a, a label for them, but be that as it may, I think that has helped me and helping me to see that there is a kind of longer genealogy, genealogical account that needs to be uh, considered. And, and my kind of next book would be basically evangelicalism and modernity evangelicalism's interaction with the sort of rise of higher criticism in biblical studies, evangelicalism in science, evangelicalism and other religions, and evangelicalism and social action. And I think these are some of the kind of spheres of inquiry that I'm actually beginning to, and for that I'm actually um, going to Kenya in October to teach for two weeks and to kind of uh, work with and kind of interview some of the uh, NGOs who work in Nairobi, uh, Christian NGOs, non-government organizations, and so such as Compassion and other organizations to see how, or how is it that, you know, as Nick, uh, Nicholas Kristof writes about in his uh, book, Half the Sky, that when he travels to the remotest parts of villages in Africa, the sort of medical doctors that he sees are not necessarily from Doctors Without Borders, but almost without fail, there will be some evangelical missionary. What happened? I mean, has that been that sort of a impulse within the early phases of evangelicalism to be agents of social emancipation or social change? How does that jive with, as I talked earlier in this convocation lecture, the sort of a rise of neo-Calvinism and some of the critique thereof? It really is bringing to the fore the question of the identity of the church vis-a-vis the culture around us and the sort of cultural mandate. What does that mean to be renewing of our minds as citizens of two kingdoms? What does that mean for us to follow the dictator of our grace? Lord to be witnesses unto all earth. I mean, what's that look like in terms of our social engagement? And I think so that's the four parts of my kind of inquiry that would be preoccupying me for the rest of my loose fellowship this year and beyond. So last thing, Mm. how does this work out for you as a Christian and evangelical with a reformed identity 
in what might be thought of as a secular university. Well, it is not what might be thought of. It is a secular university. And I think what the, the saving virtue for me, saving grace for me is that I am reformed. Meaning that, that I take very seriously the reality and real presence of common grace. I don't throw, as Nick Walterstorff warned a lot of evangelical scholars, don't throw bombshells across the schoolyard. I think, to be honest, sometimes my non-Christian colleagues may not always, especially in the Department of History, may not always know of my doing this interview, for example. They may not know, but they know me and respect me for my work as a historian. My Divinity School colleagues know that I'm unevangelical. Prior to coming to Vanderbilt, I taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary for five years, which was uh, the best thing that could happen to me in terms of my own kind of identity and my own formation as a, as a historical theologian, as an intellectual historian. And so I take my calling to be the best historian I can be to understand. I mean, history can often become a discipline that is basically about contingencies, and you never really talk about absolutes. I think the, the real challenge for me long term is, how do you actually map out providence? I mean, is it, is it my task as a historian, or am I just to be uh, preoccupying with the quotidian affairs were happening, and I just almost as a kind of way of reportage, you know, like, oh, this is what I think happened, and this is what it was. So I take my role as, as a Reformed Christian historian very, very seriously. I think one of my kind of long-distance mentors have been George Marsden, you know, who himself went to Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, and has been one of the doyens of American Protestant history here, and having taught at Notre Dame and Duke, and before that at Calvin. So I think there is a kind of a long, I mean, growing list of historians such as not only Marsden, but his successor, Mark Knoll, who's at Notre Dame now. And so I think this is a very uh, exciting time for evangelical or Reformed uh, historians to find themselves in kind of secular university context. And for that, I am really thankful that I began my academic career at an evangelical seminary at Gordon-Conwell because had I not had that kind of pleasure and privilege, I would not know what it means to be in an evangelical environment. As I mentioned to some colleagues over lunch today, you know, I think my divinity school and graduate department of religion colleagues are well aware of the fact that evangelical seminaries train their students very, very well. As one, one of my colleagues put it very memorably, the only ones who care about theology these days are evangelicals. This is something that my colleagues said in 2010. So that's a helpful and salutary reminder. So it helps me to force your head. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.